And then there were four. Matt Marchese in for Jeff Merrick for the next two days as we get you set for the conference finals. And now we have our final four. Dallas wins last night 2-1. Seattle tried to make it close late. Oliver Bjorkstrand scores. And then Jordan Everly had a chance there. And albeit it was a small one, but Jordan Everly had a chance to tie things up. Maybe I'm maybe I'm going a little bit too far off the, the rail there. But it got close at the end. Like after Bjorkstrand scored, I'm saying there's no way. There's 17 seconds left. I actually had a text out to one of the members of the Dallas Stars organization that was finished. I finished typing it. And I at two nothing, I was about to hit send. Bjorkstrand scored. And I looked at my wife and I said, better not send this one just yet. Think we need to hold off. Turns out that it's Wyatt Johnston scoring the series clinching goal. The youngest player in 31 years to score a series clinching goal. That player that did it 31 years ago was Yaramir Yager. So pretty good company for Wyatt Johnston. And another another guy that stood out to me last night was Rupe Hintz. And that extension that he signed kicks in at the beginning of next season. That's $8.45 million per you look at his number, you look at Jason Robertson's number, you look at Miro Heiskanen's number, and they have Jake Ottinger locked in for next year as well at a really good number. Jim Nils managed to keep all these guys under $9 million. I mean, by the time their contracts are done, we might be having a different, different conversation. But I don't think enough credit goes to Jim Nil for how he structured this team. Yes, he's got Joe Pavelski on a sweetheart of a deal next season. But Joel Pavelski is under $6 million. Joel Pavelski produces when it matters. Went out and traded for Max Domi and Evgeny Dodonov. Two moves that probably fell a little bit under the radar, but have really turned out well for the Dallas Stars. And by the way, he went out and hired Pete DeBoer. And the effect that Pete DeBoer has had on this team and this organization is very profound. And namely the improved play of Miro Heiskanen, who has now turned into, even though we thought he might get there, one of the best defensemen in the NHL. Smooth skating, moves the puck really well, great offensively, good in his own zone. Sneaky Norris candidate. I know he's not a finalist this year, but it almost feels like we're on the Miro Heiskanen revenge tour for not being on that final ballot because he's been excellent. After taking a puck in the face earlier in this series, Hasn't missed the beat. Never understood how a guy goes from the visor to the full face shield. I under, I'm not on the same level as these guys. I'm going to get out there and say that like I get it. But I tried to do that, go from a visor to a cage. Nope. There's not really a pretty face to protect here, so it's not that big of a deal. It's more just the eyes. But I, 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 I'm amazed at what Miro Heiskin has been able to do night in and night out. He's just been absolutely fantastic. Speaking of Pete DeBoer, he now improves to 8-0 and in Game 7s, and he continues to be one of the best coaches in the league. Like, there's something to be said about Pete DeBoer and immediate returns when he arrives in an organization. So he's coached in five places. Florida, San Jose, Vegas, Jersey, and now Dallas. In three of those stops, he has made the conference final in the first season. Three of five. Pete DeBoer is a pretty darn good coach. And he showed that last night. And for those that are keeping track at home, 
uh, New Jersey in 2012, San Jose in 2016, and now Dallas this season. And by the way, we get Pete DeBoer against the team that just fired him in the conference final. Pete DeBoer has coached three of the four teams remaining in these playoffs. Coach Florida, Coach Vegas, and now he coaches Dallas. Pretty cool. I mean, there's there's nothing to that, but just quite the story. And we are one step closer to the, the all-Windsor Spitfire final between Pete DeBoer and Paul Maurice, who go back a long way. 35 years, 36 years they go back since both were players with the Windsor Spitfires. It could be quite the story. By the way, did anyone see that maniac banging on the glass in the second period? Like, I've never understood why that is a thing. Like, it's in the middle of the play. Usually you see that behind the net, but this was on the sidewall. What a... Like, are you, it's like the people that bang on the glass in the aquarium. It's the same thing. Do not feed the animals. In this case, don't feed the animal in the front row. Matt Marchese in for Jeff Merrick. Let's get the show started. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Elliot Friedman from Hockey Night in Canada, 32 Thoughts, NHL on Sportsnet. He does everything, and he does this show, A Block Elliot. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, sir? I'm good. It was nice to not have such a late night last night. Well, then you should uh, go to bed earlier if you can't handle it. Well, okay, so full disclosure, I was trying to watch the Oilers-Golden Knights game the other night, the closeout game, and Free yeah. legit fell asleep at my desk three times. That's not a word of a lie. Like, I, mi- I, I went, I fell asleep and missed the Marsha So Natural hat trick. And you then woke up. You to me? What's that? You are not dedicated to your job. <laughs> I told my wife, I said, of course, this game has to start at 10 o'clock. It's the longest day that I've had in months, and it has to start at 10. Anyway, we could get to that another day. Um, So last night, let's focus on Dallas first. I was just waxing poetic about Pete DeBoer, and the one thing that it feels like is not automatic, but it feels almost automatic, is Pete DeBoer getting to a conference final in his first year with the team. He's now done it in three out of five spots. I don't know what it is about Pete DeBoer getting to a place and having immediate returns, but there's something to be said about that and having that kind of success as a new coach. Well, he's a good coach. I think that's what it comes down to. I think he's, I think he's a really demanding guy, and sometimes that can wear out uh, faster than in other places. So I always you know, keep a thought that that could be part of it. Um, you know, I, I think... You know, it, it's a really tough line to straddle, uh, the, you know, the line between demanding and I don't know if going too far is the right word, but it's like being demand, pushing and demanding, and it's not always very easy. And uh, I think he tries to be demanding. I think he asks for the best from his players, and he asks for the best for himself. And, uh, you know, I, I think that he, he likes to coach aggressively at times. I think players really like that. And um, but because he's a guy who pushes, I think you get into situations where it's like I think and I think a lot of coaches are like this. You you put like look at Bruce Cassidy, like the Bruins was a team. Clearly, uh, he pushed them as far as he could push them, 
and he leaves and he goes to Vegas, and now they're in the conference final too. I think, you know, so think about some of the best teachers you've ever had in, in your life, uh, Matt. You didn't always like them, but they knew how to get the best out of you. The difference is they always liked me. That's what I do. Yeah, who, who can't like you? That's true. <laughs> um, so, uh, Rupe Hintz ends up scoring the first goal, and that one, yeah. to me, just... It, it was really a nothing play. kind of came out of nowhere, and then he just turns on the burners, ends up, and of course, it's Jamie Alexiak who he ends up stealing the puck off of. But, yep. you know, that extension kicks in next year, 8.45. And Jim Nill, when you look at the Dallas Stars' salary cap, has been able to keep absolute studs under $9 million, which is a really, really tough thing to do in today's NHL. But you look at Jason Robertson, uh, albeit he hasn't had the playoff that we thought he would after the regular season he did, but Jason yep. Robertson's under nine. Rope Hintz is under nine. Miro Heiskanen's under nine. And I know that they're going to have a conversation with Jake Ottinger because his deal's up after next year. But yep. he's done a really good job in rounding out this roster and not over, I mean, overpaying, not having to overpay his stars like a lot of other places have to do. Well, you know, Matt, this is actually one of the more interesting debates about uh, the NHL where it stands right now. If you look at three of the four teams that are in the conference final, there's the Florida Panthers, there's the Vegas Golden Knights, and there's the Dallas Stars. These are no tax states, no, no state tax states. So, um, and now you still get taxed in other ways. Um, like, for example, I know that property taxes in some of these places are higher uh, than places that have state tax. Whatever the case is, um, these are no-tax states. And, uh, you know, one of the big debates is, you know, Tampa went to the finals a couple of times, three times in a row, and obviously because of Florida, they're in no-tax state. And you'll, you'll definitely hear, like Merrick yesterday, before he took today off to go work, um, he you know, we talked a little bit about why the advantages that some of these states have, warm weather, less pressure. But the no tax is definitely a thing that, you know, definitely in Tampa and definitely in Dallas, they can go and they can say, look, like you're in a no tax state. Um, you know, your real dollars are greater here than some of the other places. And in return, you know, give us a little bit of break on the overall number. And, I know that there are teams who are frustrated about this in some of the higher tax locations like California and Canada, but I don't know how you get around that. I don't think there's much of a, a desire for a carve out in terms of, Oh, this team has a higher, has a higher number because of the taxes in their situation. But that leads to what you're talking about, which is that, you know, Dallas can say, look, 8 million or 8.45 million here is worth, X over there, it's more here. Let's make it work, and and they put it to their advantage. So my, I was as you were saying that, I was thinking about. I know in in baseball and football, a lot the guys have homes in different spots where they can claim, and then there's the whole jock tax thing. That's very much an American thing, but my, I think the Canadian teams do have an advantage in that. The players that are there, they're living there. They're paying for a lot of things in Canadian dollars while getting paid in American dollars. So I don't want to say that the Canadian team should be crying poor here, but there is an advantage. Let's also talk about the weather. I mean, not for anything. I love it here, but if you said I could choose to live here or in Vegas and have my family with me, mm, I might do that. And that's and Vegas is a high-tax state. 
Uh, well, Vegas is a non is a no state tax. State. I thought they were. Ta- um, I thought it was high tax. Oh, California. I was thinking. of, sorry. California's yeah. high tax. Yes. Look, no, I don't think the teams are pr- crying poor. <laughs> but you could make an argu- argument that the salary cap is different uh, in these states because of people will take a little less because of the no state taxes. So, and I, and people do make that argument, but. Like, it's just the way it is, and I, I don't get the sense there's a lot of will or to do a lot about it. Yeah, I don't I don't think so either. Elliot Friedman, Hockey Night in Canada, and 32 Thoughts joining Matt Marchese here on the Jeff Merrick Show. Okay, so Seattle, season's done. The Cinderella run is over. It's a very admirable season, especially considering how last year went. Um, there's some decisions to make with this group. I mean, they don't have a ton of free agents that they have to worry about. Like Carson Soucy is one, maybe priced himself out of Seattle. There's, you know, Daniel Sprong is a free agent. So there's some names that are there, but the one that kind of leads the list for me is Maddie Benier is eligible for extension this off season. Where yep. do you think that is among the priority list for Ron Francis? Is that at the top or is uh-huh. maybe trying to acquire a star at the top of the list? No, I, I think that like knowing Ron Francis and Ron Francis history, um, that would be like, first of all, Beneers is their first ever pick. He had a really successful year. Um, you know, I think he's, I mean, either here, I, I think either he or Skinner is going to w- win the Calder this year. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if it's him. And certainly I wouldn't have a problem with it. Uh, if it's him, um, like, and he's a cornerstone piece of their team. Like it won't be long if he isn't their best offensive player already. It won't be long until he is. And you know, I think with him um, knowing the way that Ron Francis thinks, he'll want to lock him up for as long as he can. And uh, I think now the other thing too is don't forget the cap isn't going to go up a ton this summer. I don't think. It's much more likely it's going to go up more next summer. So it might, you know, maybe everybody here will wait uh, or Veneer's choice will be to wait. But knowing Ron Francis's history, he will try to lock him up for as long as he can. And, you know, if you take a, and, you know, they have, obviously they're going to have some decisions to make. They still have some time with a lot of their term contracts. Like a lot of their, like they have to deal with Susie, who I think is an important part of their team. Um, you know, they can decide if they want to do something with Eberly, who's got another year left. But to me, it's, it's veneers first and it all flows from there. So Seattle got to where they did with a roster that was, I, I, I don't like to say devoid of stars, but I can't figure out another way to say it because they really don't have a star. They have a bunch of really good players who play well within the system. Did yep. did they? Is this a roster that can only go so far without one or two stars on it? Like Matty Beneers is going to be in that conversation, I believe, but they still uh-huh. don't have the other guy. And I thought maybe this year at the trade deadline they might try and push some chips in because it had gone so well. Maybe it's this off season. But do you think that there is there is an appetite in Seattle to go out and, tr- and try and acquire a top line player? Um. I don't know about that. I mean, look, I, I mean, the short answer, Matt, is that you're always interested in acquiring talent, right? But you look at, like, again, I always look at the surest predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Look at Ron Francis's history as a general manager. 
he doesn't make a lot of those kinds of trades. He believes in drafting and keeping and molding. And, you know, the other thing, too, is Seattle went to the seventh game of the second round this year with a theory of and a, and a profile of the, the sum is greater than the parts. Like, the one thing I think that Vegas and, 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 and Seattle have shown is there are a lot of really good middle-of-the-roster players out there. And if you could take one middle-of-the-roster player every NHL team, you can put together a pretty decent team. Like, you can do that. And uh, I think that that's kind of their identity. Come at you in waves, make smart moves, um, and they've done that. They, have, they identify really good players. And last year they had a weakness, which was speed and scoring, and they went out and addressed it. So I'm sure they're going to sit there and say, yeah, we'd like to add better players. But if you look at Ron Francis's history, how does he do that? He, he drafts them. Yeah, he does, and I'm just looking at his his contract history. Uh, the the look mark, at his trade history. Yeah, I'm I'm look, on I'm look on good player for player trades. Okay, there are, I think there's like one. Yeah, I'm. Well, this is this is great radio, but I do know based on what I saw that the largest contract that he's handed out in terms of total value was to Jacob Slavin. At thirty-seven yep. million dollars over seven years, which, by the way, is it's not a bad player. It's r- ridiculous that, that that's the deal. Um, okay, uh, switching focus here. Wanted to talk about what we saw yesterday from Kyle Dubas, and that was not something that I don't think I certainly didn't expect, and I don't think anybody expected. But him getting emotional talking about the toll that the season took on his family, and something—it's something we definitely don't see often. It's very human of him. Hard to get in his head right now, but how do you think that this ends up? And and if he's back, what happens with the coach and the core four? Sorry, you cut out for a second there. I was just saying, it, it, Dubis obviously hasn't made yeah. a decision yet, but what well, if he look, does return? And if you do, you think he returns? Well, I thought until yesterday, I thought it was it was getting pretty close to happening. Look, like, like they they've been talking about an extension. And it really heated up, I think, Sunday. And uh, I, they were working towards it, I heard. And yesterday, kind of grinded it to a halt for a bit. And, um, like, like, again, I've been pretty consistent about this. I think they are bringing him back, or were going to. And they had decided they were going to, and they had committed to it. And, and both sides were talking about it. Like, this was, they, want, they wanted to get this done, hopefully, by the end of this week. And, um, you know, now the process is kind of stopped. And, you know, I don't want to question that anything Kyle Dubas talked about uh, there yesterday. As, as I said last night, I understand burnout, and I understand the toll uh, that a public-facing job can take on a family. And... I don't face as much pressure as Kyle Dubas does, uh, but I've seen the effect it can have. So I, you know, I understand all that stuff, and I and I respect it. I just think right now the, the question becomes, you know, a obviously Dubas and his family, how do they feel? But I think also the organization is now probably looking at it and saying, are they at all concerned that this is not the time 
for Dubis, that he's not ready for this yet. So I think it kind of goes both ways. I really believe, Matt, that everyone wanted this to be sorted out this week if they could. And I am under the impression it was moving in that direction. Hold on, let me just get away from this garbage truck. I was caught behind one earlier too, don't worry. <laughs> no, no, I'm walking next to it. That's what I can say. Um, anyway, so I, I, I'm under the impression everybody was hoping to get this done this week, and I think there was momentum for getting it done this week. And now I think it's kind of in Dubis's hands a little bit. Like, after he speaks to his family, how do they all feel? But also, how does MLSE feel? Are they concerned at all that this is not the time? Okay, so the other the other name that kind of popped up yesterday was Brandon Pridham and apparent yep. and reportedly been requested for interview by the Calgary Flames for their GM position. So, if Dubis were dis- to decide to move on and say, you know what, I'm I'm taking a break. This is not for me right now. Would Brandon Pridham be in the conversation to be promoted into that role, or do you think they like him just where he is? Thank you very much. Well, I think anything would be possible because I think it's not what anybody expected, right? And I'm sure that's one of the questions that's going on today is um, if Dubis doesn't stay, where are we going? And, um, you know, I, I, so I think that it would be one of the names. Um, I think that, you know, to this point, Calgary is not allowing Brad Tooling to talk to other teams. And I disagree with that. I really disagree with that. Um, I, I would think that Toronto would try uh, if it got to that. Uh, and I'm sure they would. Like, that's what I'm sure they're doing is, okay, if this doesn't work out, who else are we going to talk to here? And uh, I think that that's kind of what they were kind of trying for. Okay, the other, the other team that is kind of connected to all of this is the Pittsburgh Penguins and everybody had everybody and their uncle had linked Kyle Dubas to the Pittsburgh Penguins because maybe they're looking at more of an analytical approach to how they build a roster and, and Kyle Dubas would be certainly a name high on the priority list. And now that seems to be out the window. Um, it sounds like they have some candidates that they have interviewed. Maybe some are on to a, a second interview. Not quite sure. Uh, Eric Tolsky's yep. name was out there. Uh, somebody had mentioned Mark Bergevin as another one. Yep. Where do you see that search right now? And is there a name that maybe we're not talking about that we should have an eye on? Or are any of the names that I mentioned you think uh, real prime candidates there? Well, I, I think that, you know, I mentioned Bergevin in Pittsburgh a while ago. I don't know that I expect that to happen. Um, Tolsky, I think, is a possibility. There's also a president of hockey operations job out there. Um you know, I'm going through Pittsburgh right now. I think there's a lot more people that they've talked to. And I think that some of those people are kind of off the beaten path in, in the sense that I think it's the next wave of, um, of you know, people that maybe aren't going to be running uh, hockey departments yet, but eventually will be. And uh, I, I think there's a few people that, Pittsburgh has spoken to whether they're already uh, AGMs in other organizations right now, or there are people who are below that, but eventually will be AGMs or GMs. Like I think Pittsburgh cast uh, a really wide net, and a lot of the people didn't have 
the same backgrounds or current standing in terms of job titles. So I think it was a pretty, a pretty thorough search. Um, I think that they wanted to hire their president of hockey ops first, and we'll see where that goes. Um, like, I think between, uh, you know, some of the various jobs that are open right now, I think there's some overlap, and I think there were some teams waiting to talk to people. So we'll see where that – and the Ottawa sale, too. Like, the Ottawa sales mixed into all this because depending on who wins – the Ottawa bid and get the rights to negotiate, that could affect where some people end up. So I think we're going to see some clarity over the next few days on some of this stuff. Before um, we... oh, go ahead. You know, the, the one thing I think that's been interesting is I've heard there have been some candidates that have been denied permission to talk to people. Like Tree Living's not the only one. Um, you know, Rob Rossi, they reported Jeff Greenberg in Chicago. Uh, was not uh, granted permission to talk to Pittsburgh. That's true. Um, like I, that he's right about that. And I don't think he was the only person that Pittsburgh was denied to talk to. And I think in some of these cases, people have, like teams have reached out to people, and th- those individuals have declined too. So, I, you know, like, like, like I think it's been an interesting time for candidates who have either been they're going to decline to interview or permission has not been granted to interview them. Uh, before we get to the Ottawa sale, I just wanted to throw another name out there for Pittsburgh. Uh, you think Jason Botterill is in the mix? He was the interim GM in Pittsburgh, and then he was the associate GM when Jim Rutherford got named the GM there. Then he left, went to Buffalo, got fired. Now he's in Seattle. Is that a name that also could be there, especially with his link to the organization, albeit with different yeah. ownership before? You know, I, uh, I I don't like to talk a lot about Botterill, to be honest, because, um, you know, obviously we have a bit of a, like, we work with Jennifer, right? And I don't mm-hmm. like for anyone to think that Jennifer is giving me information about Jason. It's, it's, it's a line I'm, I try to be really careful about. I believe the answer is yes, but I don't know that. Okay, fair enough. Okay, the Ottawa sale. So the bids were due last night. Um, and there's a report that one of them ex- was around a billion dollars or was a billion dollars. I never thought the Ottawa Senators would go for a billion dollars, not in my wildest dreams. But people want to just make the connection like, okay, the money is if somebody it's to the highest bidder. But is that the case here? Or are there other intangibles in these bids that are very important that maybe we don't know about? Well, I think I do think the money is important. Like, for example, the people who are going to be Selling the team want the most money. Sure. Um, so, like that's why you couldn't give Ryan Reynolds the executive window because you you don't know what is being bid by other people, and you have a fiduciary duty to let everybody make the bid so you can know what the highest bids are. So, money is the most important thing. But if it's close, and um, but you know if it's close or like look like does the financing hold up? Does the mix of the ownership group hold up? I know in at least one of these cases, there have been some questions about what the ownership group would look like. Um, you know, like does you know, you know, does is there anything in the background that is a red flag, or that you look at and say, no, we don't want this person? And the NHL has to approve it. Like 
it's never these things are never easy it's it's never easy as saying okay here's a billion dollars and you've got the team it's here's our bid for a billion dollars okay now we've got to check it make sure the money's actually there make sure that your your group makes sense and make sure that you can actually close it and make sure that you know there's nothing in your background that's going to concern us here so you know, I would expect in the next few days we'll find out that there's one group who's been given a chance to close the deal, and we'll see if they can close it. Now, you know, the whole billion-dollar thing, I mean, look, you can say, like, a team is worth whatever someone's willing to pay for it. Um, you know, I think this, there's, I'm curious to see, like, in the billion-dollar sale, is the land part of that, or is the land considered a separate entity? I got to think that when you're talking about a billion dollars for the senators, you're talking about the team and the land and the right to build the arena. So it's a bit, it's like it's, it's the package, right? It's still a billion dollars and that's still a lot of money, but I think it's more than just the team for the billion dollars. Is there a preference among the NHL as to an ownership group that consists of maybe 10 to 12 people or to have no, an ownership group? Like that. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because the guy that seems to pop up here and he's been involved trying to get an NFL team as well, Steve Apostolopoulos, um, mm -hmm. Toronto area guy who is very, very wealthy. Um, yep. Is that a preference for the NHL to have less people involved in the ownership group? Well, I, that, that's a, the that's a way for any league. If you, if you take a look at the way that leagues do this, um, they like the less the better. They like one person having control or putting up by far the most money like you know like um like 15 to 20 person or some groups no they, they don't like that they like one particular person in charge as much as they can possibly be in charge uh just a quick one here so in that in the grouping that uh, i think it was bruce garriock that put it out there um there are two familiar names for nhl fans and and one of them would be michael Anlauer, who's a minority yep. owner of the habs and then jeffrey and michael kimmel uh, used to be minority owners of the Penguins. Does that help in the NHL? I don't know how much influence the NHL has on the Melnicks in all of this, but would they be in their ear saying, we are more comfortable with X if the bid is close? Uh, yes, that can happen. There's no question about that. Absolutely, familiarity helps as long as there's nothing outstanding or anything that happened that would make you change your mind. Like, the thing is, ultimately, the Melnick family is going to decide who they want to sell to, but the league has to approve it, right? So they kind of have to work together on some level on this. Um, but, yeah, that familiarity uh, always helps. Like, you know, I'll say one thing about this is that the quietest ownership group throughout all of this has been Ann Lauer. And I know the, I know the NHL would really appreciate that, but... Not if it's not if his bid is say fifty million dollars lower than everybody else's. Like you have to, you have to be at the top or close to it. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, Elliot, thanks so much for uh, taking some time for me today. And uh, yeah, let me know if you want to jump back on tomorrow or if I ruined this for you. Okay. Uh, yeah, I will. You've already ruined it, but I'll see about tomorrow. <laughs> All right, thanks a lot, buddy. There he goes, Elliot Freeman, Hockey Night in Canada, and Thirty Two Thoughts, among many other things here at Sportsnet. When we come back, Mike Zeisberger from NHL.com will join me. More reaction from Kyle Dubas's postseason media availability and what's next?
for the Toronto Maple Leafs. That's all coming up when we come back on the Jeff Merrick Show on, sport, on the Sportsnet Radio Network, Sportsnet 360, and Sportsnet Now.